and then now let's pray because I have a long, long sermon. So let's pray. (laughs) Father, would you uh, teach us now as we come to study? We're in this time of worship together. And we've been singing your praises and declaring them together. We've even been acknowledging our sin, but acknowledging, God, that in you, lost sheep find their way, uh, that you have taken uh, our stripes, our punishment upon yourself, Jesus, and for that we are thankful, and that we celebrate. Uh, Without that, we are doomed. We are in a hopeless place, but because of you, Jesus, we are not. We would ask you to teach us right now as we come to study again. Don't let us take, waste this time, but let us hear from you, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? You ever been in a situation where someone stopped you and asked you for directions, and you deliberately gave them bad directions? <laughs> no, I know none of you have ever done that. <laughs> of course not. But I have, and one time... <laughs> Uh, One time going back a few years, when I was in the sixth grade, I had a morning paper route. It was really early in the morning. It was before traffic got rolling. And uh, they were doing lots of road work in this neighborhood, one of the neighborhoods that I was delivering papers in. And so there were all these signs and roadblocks and detour signs and signs with arrows on them. And I got the clever idea that I could... I could move all that around and route this traffic back into a neighborhood so that when rush hour began from one of the busy streets that bordered this neighborhood, this would just be so fun to watch, you see. And uh, that is what I did. Uh, I kind of led traffic when traffic picked up and began to flow uh, into nowhere, you know, kind of dead-end street thing. I just thought that would be so funny to stand there and, and see this snarled up mess but the point is that morning I led a lot of people down the wrong path down literally a dead end street right and uh, all the while I'm standing around just watching this and I'm sure I look to the people in the cars as just an innocent bystander but in reality I was a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of makes you wonder what I'm doing right now doesn't it (laughs) Today, we're again in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying this for many months now. And Jesus says this. He says, watch out for false prophets. Now, we can take that word prophet, and for our application this morning, we can just put teacher in there. Uh, Prophets, teachers, you know, people that declare the word of God. Watch out for false prophets. They came to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves, Jesus said. Last week, we looked at Jesus' remarks about the narrow gate and the narrow way and the broad gate and the broad way, and we saw that while his comments had nothing to do with narrow-mindedness, nothing to do with intolerance of others, which is what a lot of people think those, those words, those comments of Jesus are about, but that's not at all what they're about. Those words have everything to do with a person's devotion to God. They have everything to do with the paths that we take in our lives. And we noted last week that Jesus' devotion to God was extremely narrow. I mean, it is. To call it anything else would be a lie. It's very exclusive, his devotion to God. Jesus made that clear when he said things like this. Uh, now, this is eternal life. Well, tell us, Jesus, what is eternal life? That's kind of a big deal. Well, this is eternal life that they know you. He's talking about the Heavenly Father, the only true God, and, and Jesus Christ. He names himself, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He claims to be sent from the Heavenly Father. And then there's that famous one we quoted last week, too, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. And he doesn't stop there. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me, except through him. You see, Jesus' devotion to God was exclusive. No, no compromises, not ever. Never did he compromise. His understanding of who he was was exclusive. No compromises. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. But at the same time, we also saw that Jesus' dealings with people who disagreed with him were incredibly inclusive. That's kind of the thing that we notice about him that's kind of striking to us. Again and again and again, we find Jesus interacting with untouchables, undesirables, people who were outcasts in that society, whether it was a tax collector, whether it was a prostitute, whether it was a leper, whether it was a Samaritan following a religious cult, whether it was adulterers. The amazing thing about Jesus is he knew how to embrace the truth and hold it tightly. In other words, be very narrow about his devotion to God, but at the same time, interacting with people who did not agree with him with amazing humility and amazing patience, amazing tolerance, but more than tolerance we saw, actually amazing love. Amazing love, which goes far beyond tolerance. And we have seen numerous times how Jesus called people to come follow him. He does this over and over and over uh, throughout his ministry here on earth. Come follow me, he says. And following him, we came to understand last week, is the narrow way. It's the narrow path. It's the narrow gate. And it is the way of blessing. It's the way of joy. It's actually the way to freedom. We think otherwise. Gosh, following anybody, listening to anybody, obeying anybody is not the way to freedom. Well, yeah, yes, it is, according to Jesus. That is the way. Following him is the way to have devotion to God and love for people. But understand, Jesus, of course, wasn't the only rabbi, the only teacher in town. Other rabbis were teaching people, too. And their teachers were often quite intolerant of anyone who did not agree with their teachings and did not do things the way they did them. In fact, it's fair to say that Jesus is concerned about those teachers, those rabbis, teachers of the law, scribes, Pharisees. These were people who pretended, many of them, to be perfect. These were people who pretended to be better than other people. And on the outside, quite frankly, they looked pretty good. I mean, they were incredible rule keepers, almost professional rule keepers. But on the inside, not so much. In fact, Jesus says this, and there's almost a tone of anger or, um, I don't mean anger out of control. I just mean, I, I think this genuinely upset Jesus, this pretending, this hypocrisy. This is what he said. He said, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woo, man. How do you feel about this, Jesus? You see, Jesus was concerned about what these teachers were teaching and not doing. And he calls them hypocrites. He calls them whitewashed tombs, which, frankly, is just another way of calling them false prophets or wolves in sheep's clothing. He's warning people about getting snookered into broad gate, broad way kinds of thinking, thinking that is not accurate. It's not accurate about God. 
It's not an accurate portrayal of God's kingdom and what God is up to. It's not an accurate portrayal of people and how God cares about people. In a way, Jesus is saying truth about narrow gates, truth about broad gates is very, very important stuff. You walk through the wrong gate, you could wind up in the wrong place for all of eternity. Nobody knows this quite like Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, get the truth about God. Get the truth about gates you go through or paths that you're on. Don't make a mistake on this stuff. The stakes are sky high. He tells us most gates, we saw this last week, most gates lead to destruction. Only one leads to life. So he says, be careful. Beware. Be very very aware. I'll never forget shortly after I came to Denver, like this is over 31 years ago now, I was trying to gather people to come to a church, you know, please, somebody, anybody. And, and I met some couples who had been a part of a church plant in downtown Denver, but the, they had recently moved out to the suburbs and I got to know them and these were Christian Upples, and I thought, oh man, we could sure use people like this to help us. And I began to tell them about Deer Creek Church and what I hoped, what I thought Jesus might do at Deer Creek Church. And I could tell they were not excited. I wanted them to join us, but, but I could tell they weren't excited. So I asked them, well, you know, what's your, what's your prior experience been? And they said, well, at one time, recently, in fact, in their experience, they were very, very, very involved in this new church plant that was downtown. Good things were happening in people's lives. They were growing. They were serving. They were sacrificially serving and giving in that church. But about a year and a half into it, something went terribly wrong. The pastor suddenly disappeared, moved to, to California, and a whole lot of church funds were missing. And no one seemed to know what was going on. And as you can imagine, the congregation just kind of came unglued. And people were hurt, and money was lost, and before long, that church didn't exist. doesn't exist, of course, today. That's why Jesus says what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount. You need to know that every time someone is victimized in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, that angers God, righteously angers him. I think you could also say it just breaks his heart. He hates it when someone uses his name to prey upon people, but people do it all the time. Always have. And because of that, Jesus wants you and me to be able to identify who's for real and who is not. Who's just a wolf walking around in sheep's clothing. And so all of us have a need, and I would say a serious need, to be able to discern not be naive or gullible in this, be able to discern uh, whether the, the authors that we read or the messages that we hear or the podcasts that we subscribe to or the professors who lecture us or the teachers that we sit under or for that matter, the churches we join or become a part of are giving us reliable, accurate, truthful information. Because true spirituality Developing a Christ-like heart, a Christ-like character depends on knowing the truth, you see. Knowing the truth about God and knowing the truth about yourself, ourselves, knowing the truth about the world we live in, and then doing the truth. Not being just hearers, but doing the truth. So question, 
Are the things that you absorb, the things that you soak in, the things that you let influence you, are they truth or are they error? Do you have any way of determining the difference? Do they help you develop true spirituality, that is a heart and a character like Jesus? Jesus tells us that false prophets, false teachers are a fact of life and that means we need discernment. And that's Jesus' first point of importance here in that passage that we read. Beware false teachers. Beware of false prophets. Now, secondly, Jesus says these false prophets are in disguise. They don't wear badges that say false teacher. Uh, They don't have a disclaimer on the jacket covers of their books or warnings before their radio broadcasts or their TED Talks or their lectures or their sermons that say, the message you are about to hear is presented by a false teacher. Believing this message could be hazardous to your spiritual health. Nothing like that is going to warn you. Bottom line, they don't look or talk or sound much different than any other teacher. Not at first. Not at first. They are effectively and intentionally disguised. That's the second thing. Third thing that Jesus makes very clear is that these prophets, these teachers, they do great harm. They really do. Verse 15, Jesus describes them as ferocious Wolves. Well, what do wolves do? Well, they enjoy tearing sheep limb from limb and rib from rib. They love eating sheep for lunch, which is a rather graphic way of saying that these prophets will use people, they will abuse people, they will manipulate people, they will confuse people, they will rip people off for personal benefit. They don't care about people's lives. They don't care about people's hurts. They don't care about sorrows. They don't care about needs. And they certainly don't care about people's eternity. They just want to feed off of people. So an obvious question. If these teachers are so ferocious, how do we identify them? And here Jesus changes the metaphor. He shifts into a fruit metaphor. Okay. He says this. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What's the answer? Okay. Again, if you were a charismatic congregation, I wouldn't have had to ask. You just... (laughs) Likewise, every good tree, he says, bears good fruit, but bad... A tree, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. What Jesus is saying is that what's on the inside will eventually leak out, it gets out. Thorn bushes will eventually produce thorns, not grapes, not ever. Thistle bushes will eventually produce thistles, not figs, not ever. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, says Jesus. And let's be clear, it's not that good teachers never sin, they do all the time, but they repent of it. And it's not that bad teachers never do good, because they do plenty of good, but then they repent of it. And they get right back to preying on sheep. Huge difference. Again, what's on the inside 
will come out. The Apostle Paul was talking about stuff that happens in the life of human beings, good stuff and bad stuff. And uh, he used this language to describe this. He said, the acts of the flesh. This is, this is not following Jesus. This is not spiritual, spiritually good things. The acts of the flesh. This is us in the broken, sinful world that we live in. This is us as sinners. The acts of the flesh are obvious, he says. Sexual immorality is one of them. Impurity and debauchery. There's a word we don't use, debauchery, but that just means extreme indulgence in bodily pleasures with whether that's sex or alcohol or drugs or what have you. Uh, idolatry and witchcraft. We don't use that language a lot, but idolatry we, we talked about in what we confess. That's going after anything to find your happiness other than God because God is the only place to find meaning, purpose, truth, happiness, etc. And we put all kinds of stuff in his place. That's idolatry. Witchcraft is looking for spiritual power to accomplish ends and means and things that you want to accomplish. And it's not God I need, but maybe I can find that spiritual power over here with this thing, you see. Idolatry and witchcraft. Don't think we don't do both. We do. Hatred. Discord. Jealousy. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition. Dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's a pretty good list of bad fruit right there. That is, and if you see any of those things in the life of a teacher, if you see those kind of patterns, Jesus says, beware. Open your eyes. Don't be blind. You are probably dealing with a false prophet or a false teacher. Paul goes on to say, I warned you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not kingdom of God stuff. That's not kingdom of God teaching. That's not going to get you uh, more deeply into the kingdom of God. No way, no how. That's broad gate, broad way thinking and behavior, which leads to destruction, says Jesus. Now, Paul describes what good fruit looks like, too. And I love how he does this. He talks about it, first of all, it comes from the Holy Spirit. Good fruit isn't something we produce. It's not something I concoct and come up with. It's actually produced in me by the Holy Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and then he gives this incredible list, love. First thing out of the gate, joy, he says. Peace. Forbearance. Wow, forbearance is a word we don't, we don't use much, but really what that is, that's, that's patience, that's self-control, that's things like restraint, Tolerance, if you will, that's forbearance. So love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Such, uh, against such things, there is no law, says Paul. And that's a pretty good list of good fruit. That's what you're looking for. Things that the Holy Spirit causes to happen in the life of someone who is following Jesus. These are the character traits you should look for in any teacher, any professor, anyone that you open up to and say, influence me spiritually. And these are the very things that we see in the life of Jesus. In fact, every one of those words, Jesus embodies perfectly. Again, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you watch a teacher and you don't see these things in growing measure over time, you're not going to see them perfectly, but you need to see these things or beware, says Jesus. Now, there's some other things that you might want to consider as you kind of do this fruit inspection thing that Jesus calls you to. Uh, 
when you evaluate a, a teacher, uh, when you evaluate somebody that, that you are letting influence you spiritually, I would suggest you ought to ask questions like these. I'm going to give you four. How does this teacher handle truth slash the Bible? How does this teacher handle truth? Does he make it up? Does he come up with all kinds of creative, unique ideas uh, particular to that teacher? Uh, do these so-called truths uh, conform to the Bible itself? Uh, second question, how does this teacher handle authority? How do they handle power? How does this teacher, third question, handle money? Fourth question, how does this teacher handle people? And why these things? Well, simply because this is the stuff that spiritual teachers traffic in. Truth. They're always claiming that what we say from places like this is true, right? Authority, power, money, people. This is what spiritual teachers traffic him. In Acts, uh, the Apostle Paul is on his way journeying to Jerusalem and he stops off in a church that he started. It's in Ephesus. And he wants to meet with the elders and he gathers them together and he says to these elders, these leaders in this church at Ephesus, and Ephesus is a healthy, growing, vibrant church. He says, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he, Jesus, bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves, there's that, that concept, that phrase, wolves again, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. In other words, some of you elders, this is going to happen to, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. That's Paul's heart. So check out how a teacher handles the Bible by considering carefully whether this thing that Paul talks about, whether they distort the truth. Do your teachers, do your professors disparage God, disparage the Bible? Do they have a bias against Christianity or Jesus or the idea of just moral, a moral universe that we live in? Or do they disparage spiritual things in general? If so, beware. And if we're talking specifically about spiritual teachers, oh my. You know, pastors, small group leaders, do they have obvious distortions when they teach? like denying the supernatural parts of the Bible or denying that God is the creator and the maker of all things or denying the virgin birth of Jesus or the miracles that we see Jesus performing or do they deny the resurrection or do they deny that Jesus is the unique son of God? Do they say, hey, you know, all ways lead to God, so we're going to talk about one of them, but there are many ways to God. Do they say that all religions teach the same thing? Do they say there is no heaven, there is no hell? Do they say that the Bible is full of myth and full of errors? I will suggest to you, just read the Gospels. Jesus did not believe that the Old Testament was filled with myth and legend and error. He quotes it over and over and over authoritatively. I mean, ask yourself, are there any obvious imbalances in this teacher's teaching? Now, that's not the same question as does this teacher teach things the way I like to hear them? 
if the teacher is teaching God's word well, your imbalances and <laughs> theirs, his as well, will eventually be challenged over time. That's what the word of God will do with all of us. And if the teacher is teaching well, they won't stay stuck on one subject. I mean, some teachers just get stuck on stuff like prophecy. They just want to talk about the future. They even like to get up close to the idea that this is when Jesus will return. It'll be April, blah, 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 blah. Just pointing out, nobody up to this point has ever been right. (laughs) And I would just suggest nobody from this point forward is ever going to be right about predicting the day, the moment of Jesus' return. They just won't be. Does a teacher get stuck on healing and think that healing is everything? That the reason we gather is to get, get healed of our, of our sicknesses and so on and so forth. Well, healing is something God does do, but you know what? People die. Have you noticed that? People get sick. Have you noticed that? So do they talk about sickness? Do they talk about death? Is there balance in their teaching? Accountability. Some groups get off in the accountability area and they're watching. We're thinking of doing this. We're going to appoint one person for every household just to come and live and watch you. you know. Is there an overemphasis on accountability and not enough emphasis on forgiveness and grace? Is there an overemphasis on prosperity? You know, God actually does like to prosper his people, but that's not the whole story. Sometimes his people suffer. Uh, sometimes his people experience loss and hardship. So if you're going to preach the whole counsel of God, you can't just talk about prosperity. That's ridiculous. Some places, some parts of the world, God's people are suffering greatly. They're anything but prospering, right? And it's not because they lack faith. It's because of circumstances, politics. You know, you can get in some churches where politics is kind of presented as, you know, This is the solution, getting the right politicians in the right place at the right time so that the kingdom of God can be brought. And I would just say politics and politicians do not save, they never will. I'm not saying don't vote, I'm not saying don't care, I'm not saying don't pay attention. If you want to know how to vote, just come ask me. But but I, I would say to you, do not think for one second politicians are going to deliver up the kingdom of God. It isn't going to happen, friends. Not that, not that way. Success, power. Do they sit on success and power? They're always giving you principles for success and for more power. Well, do they talk about failure and weakness? Because the Bible does. Self-help psychology kinds of stuff. Here's how to improve your marriage. Here's how to improve your parenting. Here's how to improve, I don't know, your pet care. I don't know. Well, the Bible talks a lot about repentance, repentance of sin and brokenness. You know, is there balance in the teaching? If there isn't balance in a teacher's ministry over time, that is not a good sign. The Bible tells teachers to teach the whole will of God. That's what Paul said he taught the elders there in Ephesus. The whole will of God, not just the parts we like. And that means the Bible is going to meddle in your life and in the life of the teacher. This is how the Bible works. There's no no going around this or getting away from it. 
God is going to challenge us and challenge our culture about all kinds of things. The Bible, God's word, God's truth is going to make us uncomfortable. Our views of sex and marriage, our views of gender and identity, our views of money, our views of giving, our views of serving, our views of mercy, our views of suffering hardship or justice or poverty. The list just goes on and on. All these things need to be looked at from the perspective of God's word if we want to develop true spirituality. We must bring our thinking into obedience, into line with, into conformity with the word of God, with the Bible. Frankly, subjects, uh, there are all kinds of subjects I would just like to not talk about. <laughs> Woo, I don't really want to talk about some of those things I listed. But you know what? Our culture talks about them all the time. And so does the Bible. So does God. Why? Does God just want to cause trouble? Well, no, not really. God wants us to flourish. He wants us to be who we're meant to be. And so he wants us to know who we are. He wants us to know why we're here. He wants us to know what sex and marriage and stuff like that are actually for and how beautiful they're meant to be. And he wants us to love others. He wants us to know how to parent. He wants us to know how to handle our money in ways that actually we flourish and so do others because we're serving others with some of the things that God gives us. He wants us to live purposefully. And so all these things have to be taught. And the point is, beware the teacher that only beats one drum. Ask yourself over time, are there any glaring omissions in this teacher's teaching? Do they talk about real life issues? The Bible does. Do they talk about sin and brokenness? The Bible does. Do they talk about repentance and faith? Do they talk about grace and salvation in Jesus' name alone? Do they challenge us in our priorities? Do they call us to practice worship, to practice community, to practice serving? Understand, these are patterns and practices that we see deeply rooted and lived out in the life of Jesus. These are themes of the Bible that can only be ignored to your and to my detriment. I promise you, that's true. If a teacher never addresses these things, if a teacher beats only one drum, something is probably out of whack. Now, on the authority or the power question, ask yourself, is the teacher under authority? Or does this teacher just do whatever this teacher wants to do? Can this teacher be called on the carpet? Can they be challenged? Can they be corrected? Can they be fired? <laughs> if not... Beware. Pay attention to how a teacher handles power. You remember Paul's words to the Ephesian elders? He said, some teachers will distort the truth in order to draw a following. Well, that's talking about power. That's what comes with a following. You have power. And let's just kind of talk candidly for a moment. When a speaker stands in front of a crowd and there are bright lights and there are some people paying attention, usually few, but some people paying attention, there are some powerful dynamics at work. Minds are being stimulated and ideas are being generated and emotions are being kindled and hearts are being moved and decisions are being made. And where all that energy is being directed is awfully important for you to take note of. I mean, is that energy being directed toward the teacher or is that energy being directed toward God? 
I love how the Apostle Paul describes his ministry to another church, the church at Corinth. He says this, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you. Listen to what he proclaimed, the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And there's a lot we could say about that, but I'm just going to say this. The point is, Paul's ministry was not about Paul. It was about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul pointed people to Jesus. I'm reading a book right now. It's an old book. It's uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shirer. And so uh, it was written just after World War II, not long after. It's fascinating to me. Lots of stuff in this book I did not know. I'm discovering what kind of a mad genius Adolf Hitler uh, was. And, of course, I know some things, like you know some things about him. But amazing to read about his, his uh, ability to speak publicly and just mesmerize people. He has an incredible speaking ability. And when he would speak to people, he would get them fired up, man. They wouldn't be sitting in seats like you are. Uh, they, they are fired up. And he would direct their emotions toward himself and toward his own maniacal agenda. And he was greatly successful in this. So successful, in fact, that the result of his speaking, his motivating, and his leading a nation, the result of that was the death of somewhere, we're not sure how many, between 50 and 75 million people. Contrast that with other mesmerizing speakers. About Martin Luther King Jr., he was a mesmerizing speaker. Boy, he could motivate people. But you know, when he motivated people to take a stand against things like oppression, uh, racism, bigotry, he did it in the name of Jesus. And he did it with a methodology that promoted peace, not riot. The Bible says, watch how a speaker uses the power that comes with the position to teach, to influence, to call people into action. Ask yourself when you listen to a teacher, is this teacher trying to point me to Jesus? Or is this teacher trying to establish or build their own fan club or their own empire or get their own glory? Ask yourself if the teacher is using power to serve listeners or to use listeners. Do you go away saying, wow, what a great God we serve? Or do you go away saying, wow, what a great speaker? Jesus pointed people towards the Father. And Jesus was the best speaker there ever was. But he pointed people towards the Father. He warned against doing otherwise. He said one time, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' Seat, that's the seat of telling people what God wants them to do. The seat of telling people who God is and what God is like. That's the seat of Moses. It's the seat of teaching or proclaiming the word of God. And he goes on to say, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you to do. He means when it lines up with God's word. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach, he says. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They don't practice what they preach. They do not follow their own rules, their own laws. They pretend to be law keepers without admitting their own failures to keep the law. They pretend to be people who are perfect. 
And Jesus goes on to say, everything they do is done for people to see. That's a huge indictment. They make their phylacteries. Those are those little black boxes that have scripture written on them. And they, the bigger you make them, the more people are going to see them, right? So they make their phylacteries wide and big and the tassels on their prayer garments, super duper long. Ooh, that's a big prayer. And uh, they love the place of honor, Jesus says, at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. That's what they love. In contrast, they should be pointing people to the Father. In contrast, they should be honest about their own failings, their own inability to keep the law the way they pretend to keep the law. So beware. So how does a teacher handle the Bible? How does a teacher handle power? The third question is, how does a teacher handle money? Paul told the elders in Ephesus, just as he was leaving to to go to Jerusalem there, he says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Paul is saying, I didn't start this church for money reasons. Paul is saying, I didn't teach for monetary gain. I never crossed lines for the sake of getting money. I never buddied up to the affluent people in the church in hopes that they would give me stuff or money. In short, he says, I have always demonstrated financial integrity. I have put my money where my mouth is. And believe me, Paul did. Check out a teacher by how a teacher and the organization that that teacher is a part of handles money. Uh, A teacher shouldn't hold the purse strings. Uh, There's no specific Bible verse I can give you on that. I'm just telling you, it's not healthy for the teacher to hold the purse strings. If I know how much you give, Joe, let's hang out, man. You're a big giver. Let's go to lunch tomorrow. Or I'll take you to lunch today. See how corrupt that can get real fast, real bad. I don't think a teacher should hold the purse strings. You know, uh, on the other side of that whole thing, Paul and other New Testament writers taught that, that churches needed to pay their teachers and pay them well. The point is, don't make the uh, teacher's labors a hardship for them or for their family. That's not what Paul advocates. He said the worker, he writes to Timothy one time, he says the worker deserves his wages. <laughs> but Paul also knew that some teachers can get real greedy. Boy, when those teachers hold the purse strings, that's a dangerous formula. Teachers can get so greedy and sneaky about money that they learn to fleece the sheep under the cover of feeding the sheep. So wisdom says, watch how a teacher handles money. A church should have all kinds of checks and balances in place to protect those who handle money and to protect the money. A church needs this. Any church without this is just on really thin ice. Here at Deer Creek, we have a finance ministry team. And uh, they make recommendations about budget to our session, to our elders, to the leaders here in the church. Uh, This goes back and forth several times, questions, answers, debate, and and interaction, and so on. Once a year, we report out to you all what the finances of the church look like. Here's the giving. Here's where the dollars went out. This is what ministry looks like. This is what we fund. If you want to know or if you want information on this church's finance, come ask me. I'll send you directly to Tim. And, and Tim will get you connected with a member of that committee or himself or what have you. Uh, we will do everything we can to answer your questions adequately. If you want to know what I make, just come ask me. You should also ask me what I give. 
But a warning, I'm going to ask you what you make, and I want to know what you give. And I'm not kidding. So I'll tell you, happily. But I'm going to ask you the same question, okay? Our financial records in this church are open. Uh, we have nothing to hide. This is really the only way that trust can be built and maintained in a church. If I control the money, and I know what everybody gives, and I dole out the money, we have problems. We would have problems. And I thank God that not since day one of this church have I ever been in that position. In fact, I've been guarded from it, and I'm thankful. Now, some fair questions a person could have is, how are the staff paid? I mean, well, here's what we do. After the offering each Sunday, we go back in the room, and we just put it all out there on the table, and we add it up, and I take my, pay, my, you know, my piece of the pie, and then the next one takes some. And No, that's, no. All of us are, of course, on salary. That's how this works. Um, who sets the salaries? Well, the session and the finance team. And they do it using best practices and cost of living factors. You know, it's more expensive to live here than in some parts of the country and less expensive to live here than in other parts of the country. There's all kinds of demographic information that they use to do their best at making good decisions around this. Our officers here are responsible to oversee and assure that any teacher here is trying to advance the purposes of God and God's kingdom versus trying to establish their own financial empire, you know, through the sheep. And so financial information, again, is available. Um, open book. Ask for it if you want it. One final thing uh, before I, I close, and that's this. Watch how a teacher handles the Bible, power, money, and then finally watch how a teacher handles people. One time in the Old Testament, there were some leaders, there were some teachers who got very heavy-handed with God's people, and this is what we read. Listen to what God says. Uh, it says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, that's the good stuff. You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and the slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost you have ruled them harshly and brutally. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. Wow. These teachers have three big problems. One, they didn't care about people's needs. Two, they didn't care about lost sheep or evangelism, you know, people that have strayed or people who are lost. And three, they treated people, the language here is harshly and brutally. In other words, they powered up on people for personal gain. They bullied, they intimidated, they manipulated, they used them, they mishandled that which matters most to God. And that is people. God will not let anyone treat the flock the way these teachers and leaders did and get away with it. When you're making up your mind about teachers, try to get a feel for how they feel and how they act 
toward needy people or lost people or people of all races and backgrounds and political persuasions. Try to get a feel for whether the teacher treats people harshly and brutally. If this is a teacher with an, kind of an iron-fisted dictator type of personality versus an open-handed, more collaborative kind of leader, um, beware. Good teachers are going to speak difficult truths. They're supposed to, but they do it lovingly. They do it with humility. Uh, they do it with a non-judgmental heart. It's what we talked about last week. It's truth and humility. That's Jesus. You see, Jesus warns us, beware of false prophets and false teachers. Nothing grieves him more than to see a sheep harshly and brutally treated by a teacher. So do your fruit inspection. <laughs> Observe character, observe how a teacher handles the Bible and power and money and people. And if you feel that things aren't adding up the way they should, what should you do? Well, you should go to that teacher. Matthew 18, Jesus teaches us this. Share your concerns, ask your questions, be open, be humble, be willing to listen. You may get good explanations, good answers to your questions, or maybe you will help the teacher grow. I have had people come to me around preaching concerns and I have had to listen. Sometimes I don't agree and sometimes I've been convicted and I believe that they're, they have validity to what they're saying. Um, but I'll tell you what, if that teacher powers up or refuses to listen or becomes angry or accusatory, well, you may need to change teachers or churches or classes or schools or radio stations, whatever it is. If you have a problem with the teaching that comes from this place, you should definitely talk to the teacher first, period. And if you feel like it doesn't get resolved, you should talk to an elder. You should go to an elder and have that conversation. Jesus asked a good question one time. He asked this question. He said, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So who do you want to be like? Uh, if you determine that you have a bad teacher, then for self-preservation purposes, get out before you get hurt or you get had or worse, you become like the teacher. On the other hand, what do you do if after your fruit inspection, your teacher passes the test? Then what? What do you do? Well, the Apostle Paul says this, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And I, I think what Paul is saying here is you should double the teacher's salary. <laughs> and that's really the point of this whole message. <laughs> You're wondering where all this was going, weren't you? <laughs> no, that is not what Paul means. What he really means is encourage that teacher. I mean, pray for that teacher, support that teacher in their ministry, meet the teacher's needs. And if you really want to show that teacher encouragement and love and support, then I'll tell you more than anything else, apply, put into action the things that that teacher teaches. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says, says James. A true teacher loves to see people applying God's word in their lives and growing and becoming more like Jesus. And when you run across a true teacher, like your children's Sunday school teacher, you go out of your way to ever thank them, to appreciate them, 
They're investing in the life of your son, your daughter, or a small group leader. Do you ever just thank them for their preparation, for their work, for their prayer, for when your small group gathers? Or like a student group leader that are spending time with your teenager, loving on them, listening to their stuff they say, uh, (laughs) and, you know, just interacting with them. Or a professor or a pastor, whatever it is. Give thanks to God that there is a man, there's a woman who works hard to handle the Bible accurately, to handle power wisely, to handle money honorably, and to handle people lovingly. That teacher is a good thing for the kingdom. That teacher is treasured by God and, you know, advances God's kingdom And that teacher should be a treasure to you and to your family. So thank God when God gives you a good teacher. Let's pray. Father, we take this warning seriously. Beware. Jesus, you you are literally warning us all to beware of false teachers and false prophets. And that means we need the wisdom of your word and the collective wisdom of leaders who in churches. We, we, we pray, God, that here in this place, in, in this church, you, you, your truth, your word would be proclaimed loudly, accurately, consistently. And then may we listen and may we all do it, Lord, when we hear teaching that challenges us or encourages us. Father, uh, we pray for your kingdom to continue to advance, for your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That is our desire. And to the degree to which teachers play a role in that, God, um, may you use them well. May you be honored in their teaching. And may you advance your purposes through them. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.